A travel pod capable of reaching 1,200 kilometres an hour is one of several high-tech creations turning heads in Melbourne. The Future Assembly Show highlights the very latest in everything from speed of sound transportation to virtual 3D shopping. Hello and welcome to Future Sandwich, episode 11. You're up for something a little bit different today. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Future Assembly in Melbourne on December 2nd. I hosted a panel of some familiar faces and names, and the format was based around a series of statements that I put up on a big screen. The panel were then asked to hold up a sign that showed they either agreed with that statement or disagreed with it. People in the audience could show where they stand with live polls on Twitter too. So here it is. Enjoy the show. First up, this bloke is one of the most fired up dudes you'll find in Australia. His eyes are wide open. His name is Steve Sammartino. He is the co-host of Techtopia on ABC Radio National and the author of The Great Fragmentation, which you'll be able to win if you participate on Twitter, uh, a signed copy of in an hour's time. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Steve Sammartino, please. Oh, come on, let me hear it. Let's go. That's better. Okay, coming up next, we've got a dude who is arguably one of the most powerful business people on the planet, purely because he reports directly to one of the most powerful people on the planet. Nick Hodges is head of innovation at News Corp Australia, and he does report straight to Rupert. But amongst other things, this guy is one of the smartest, most clever, articulate blokes you will ever meet. Uh, if you want to find out more about uh, Nick's stuff and see how just how clever he is, go to blonde3.com and just subscribe to the brief or alpha.newscorp.com and subscribe to the alpha emails. They are unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Nick Hodges, please. Yeah, come on, let's go. Row two, big, big clap. Yeah, yeah. And here we go. We've got a very special guest today. She's the founder of Lupe and Beanie Wines, the uh, single-serve wines. She was uh, casually BRW's top 50 emerging leaders of 2015. She's director of Second Bite, which rescues food from going to waste. And, of course, the CEO of Startup Victoria. Ladies and gentlemen, give a big welcome to Georgia Beanie, please. So, the show. Today, the format is going to basically be... A handful of topics are going to go on the screen here. Now, just to avoid any fence-sitting at all, these guys, after a statement, are either going to agree or disagree. So there will be no question around where they stand. Can you pass those down for me, Georgia? Thank you. If you go to... You guys can participate as well on Twitter, at at future underscore sandwich. Each topic will have a Twitter poll, and at the end of it, if you participate, you might be eligible for one of the signed Great Fragmentation books. So jump on Twitter and get involved, huh? So, first of all, thank you. Appreciate your time. Let's dive into our first topic, yeah? Mark Zuckerberg recently said, news and media are not the primary things people do on Facebook. So I find it odd when people insist we call ourselves a news or media company. We are a technology company. So, can we see your signs, please? Oh, there's something in the middle. Well, okay. Georgia, I'll start with you. Uh, A tech company you disagree with? 
the what they're selling is is data. That's how he's making money. But the way we interact on it is definitely news and photos and sharing our lives, un, unlike what he does. So that's where it's where he's making the the, the dollars. Then when you have that thing of we share our lives, obviously, but we also are exposed to a huge amount of news, obviously advocated by people within our network, and then there's the whole paid channel as well. As soon as, I mean, the reason why they've got $100, $100 billion in, in, in uh, cash is because of their paid model. They are an advertising channel, and uh, do you think that that, like it's evolved into a huge commercial operation, uh, does that change that at all? The, the fact that it's, a, it's I mean, the... the they're the biggest, one of the biggest data collectors in the world, and they've, they've I mean, that's that's their their asset. So their apps, although it's it's what it's what they do, that where, where the, the the funds are actually made is a different path. But you're probably actually this is right down your alley. I'm struggling to. Uh, <laughs> make I've lost a all respect for you, Nick. I just I've zero now. You've zeroed, man. You're zero to me. So you're on the fence. Uh, uh, where, do, where does my microphone come? There. I, look, I, in some ways I am on the fence. I'm going to argue with, with the wording of the question because it's sort of two things we have to agree with. One is um, uh, the, the, this idea that um, people don't get their news from Facebook. That's fundamentally untrue. 66% of um, people in the US um, cite Facebook as their primary source of... Sorry, 66% of Facebook users cite Facebook as their primary source of news media. Um, that means it's about 50% of the population. So, so that's fundamentally wrong. The reason that I agree that they're not a media company, that they are potentially a technology company, is because the, uh, th this argument fundamentally does not have the right language around it. We do not want Facebook to be a media company um, because media companies act um, in an editorial role. Um, that means they have to be accountable to that editorial role. It means they have to have the right talent. It means they have to have the right understanding of history and ethics and sociology and all these things to be able to be a media company. We don't want Facebook uh, performing any form of editorial function in the world. That would be a terrible idea. So in terms of agreeing with the fact that they're not a media company, they are a technology company, um, I'm going to go with the fact that they are a technology company. But in doing so, what, what I would say, and you know, all you guys here, you're going to have conversations about Facebook and fake news and editors and whether they're a media company. And the fact is we are using the wrong language around this argument and it's dangerously wrong language um, because we need to be thinking about whatever Facebook is, it's a new thing. It's 1.4 billion people um, that are connecting and that are sharing things, um, but it's definitely not a media company. So does that basically mean that we should stop caring about trying to box them up and just let them be what they are and be aware of what they are? No, I think, well, I mean, look, okay, so what, I'm, what I was talking about then was not necessarily inherent to Facebook. It's just Facebook's the biggest example of it. Yeah. There's a couple of angles to come at this question. One is Mark Zuckerberg. Two is Facebook the company. Three is the concept of a billion person plus social network that shares content. Um, I think that I, I think that trying to box Facebook around into answering this question is extremely important. Mark Zuckerberg is, is sort of 
fundamentally disconnected from reality. Um, not just on this. I mean, you look at the you look at the things that he talks about. You look at um, you, you look at free basics. You look at the, what he thinks about virtual reality. You look at the fact that he doesn't believe that people get them. He's he's not really connected to reality. So I don't think we should be looking at them to solve the problem. I don't think we should be looking at Facebook to solve the problem through code. I think that's a very dangerous um, area to go as well. I think, you know, like I said, it's it's a it's an it's a problem of language, and I think the solution to it is giving people the language to talk about, um, to inquire, and to talk to each other about what's actually happening in the world of media that's been enabled by technology like Facebook. Sammer, thoughts? Well, I agree that Mark Zuckerberg's weird. He's kind of the new Michael Jackson in many ways. He's never had a real life. He grew up, bang, straight, billionaire. The, th the thing with um, uh, Zuckerberg is that I disagree with Nick because they do make curation decisions. So a media company has a whole lot of stuff that they can present to people in an audiovisual format or written format, and they have an algorithm which in many ways is the way they make editorial or, or curation decisions. So whether or not they want to be a media company, they've become one because of what they do. So they do make decisions based on their algorithms in the black box and we don't know what it is. The other thing that I would say is we've got to judge a company based on how it gets its revenue. And so its revenue comes from advertising and media. So therefore, it is dead set in the center of a media company. It doesn't get its revenue via selling technology. It gets its revenue via selling eyeballs to people because that's where attention is. They're in the attention economy. So even though they use technology, they're a media company. If we said that they're a technology company, does that mean that General Motors is a steel company? You know, does that, does that mean that you know, Coca-Cola are in the plastics business. I mean, we're talking about the tools that build what they do as opposed to what they sell and where their revenue comes from. So there's a certain responsibility that comes uh, with where they happen to be. And I don't want Facebook to be that technology company or to be the media company, but at the moment they are. So we either need to make them accountable or, or change the rules in some way. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't want them to be, but it turns out that they are. Good chat. All right, next one. Everybody in this country should learn how to program a computer because it teaches you how to think. That was a quote from Steve Jobs 15 years ago. Who can't, who can't code? <laughs> I can't. No, Steve Jobs couldn't. That's why it was funny. So what do we reckon? Oh, we've got some conflict here, which is good. This is good. George, start with you. You agree? Oh. I can't code. These two can, and I—it's uh, like I don't speak—I don't—I don't speak a, a fundamental language, and so I, I do feel like I'm, I'm missing out. And it's—it's um, it's something we talk a lot about of, of having that that baseline. I mean, we learnt French when we were in year two. When it would have been nice to have this layer of understanding how a program is built. We. Oui. So, pardon. We. Oui. Oh. <laughs> so it turns out I didn't learn French either. Um, so I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm missing out and I, I really do, if I, when I find the time, need to, to learn. I think this was triggered by a piece of writing that you put out this week. I reckon I'm looking forward to seeing this while you're, uh, this piece of writing. Uh, you disagree, yeah. and you've got a really interesting perspective on it, Nick. Tell I, us why. Yeah, I, I may be cheating here because I wrote an article about this about five days ago. Um, 
again, this is one where, in, in, in one way I agree, in another way I disagree. Um, every kid growing up as part of a child's education should learn to code in the sense that we learn about mathematics, we learn about physics, we learn about the structure of the English language. We're, and the reason we learn that through, through that process of doing the basics is that we start to learn the basics and the building blocks. Every kid that's growing up today has to learn to code. That's just, a, that's absolutely unquestionable. Um, the idea that every person, the idea that every person here sitting out there should go out and learn to code, I think is fundamentally dangerous um, because what it does is it starts to create two classes of people. It starts to create a class of people who can code and a class of people who can't code. And when you go and try and learn how to do a language, um, what you will find is learning a computer, program, a computer programming language is actually really hard. And if a hundred of you in this audience sort of have a passing interest in doing that and go out and try, about 98 of you will fail. And every time people fail at it, we get this growing divide of people who can code and people who can't code. And we're in this really dangerous um, phase right now, probably for the last five years, where the coders, and you know, generally these white you know, college dropouts living in San Francisco in the Valley are the new masters of the universe. And they're the new masters of the universe because... Um, they know how to code. Um, and I, I think that's a really dangerous idea. And the, the, that whole phrase, the masters of the universe, was actually coined by Tom Wolfe back in the 80s to refer to the bankers of Wall Street. And the interesting thing was that the bankers on Wall Street totally embraced that. They thought they controlled the world because they were controlling the money. And that didn't turn out so well. So I think that you know, this new age where we have people who think if you're in control of the code, you're in control of the world is really dangerous. Um, and and the, the sort of answer to that, because I've just told you all not to go and code, if, not to go and learn to code, is once again, it's a case of language. We need to, rather than teach everyone how to actually write programs, you all need to, to, to go out and, and understand how programs affect your lives. Um, you, you need to understand what data inputs create what data outputs. You don't need to know how the box works, but you need to know what it actually does. And Sam has got a great idea around this about like um, sort of uh, like licensing like we do ingredients on food of actually, um, uh, sorry, licensing, of labeling food um, in the same way we should actually be labeling technology as to what's actually in it that gets the output. I think, just, I think I've disagreed enough, so here's Samma. Yeah, I, I agree with Nick. Understanding what it can do and how it works is way more important. Having said that, um, you'll all be able to code in about 15 years anyway if you can speak English because we'll, we'll get to a point where semantic language will be able to be translated into code. That's, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that that's going to happen. So if you're patient enough, you'll be able to code. So it's fine, right? So you don't need to stress out. The other thing is that... Um, the Masters of the Universe thing and the code, it's, it's, it's a bit of a misnomer. I, honestly, and this, this is not to be dismissive to coding, in many ways it's bricklaying, right? For me, the important thing in society is the architecture that goes with building a business. I think the entrepreneurial element of organising the factors of production is way more important than being the factors of production. And at the end of the day, coding is kind of... It's one of the factors of production that go together to create new revenue streams and solve problems. Yes, a lot of things are moving to software as we virtualize in the world, but I think that the overriding thing that we need to do is understand economic systems and the parts that go into it. It just so happens now that code is one of those parts that we haven't understood in great detail up until recently. So for me, I think understanding finance will take you far further than understanding code will. Let's go number three. If animals have rights, then so should robots. 
How are we feeling about it? Have we got any, have we got any conflict? Come on, stop looking at each other. What do you reckon? It's a go. massive. It's, I'm it's going deep. first this it's time. It's heavy, right? I'm going first this time. I'm going to try and work out my position. He's working out. Okay. His, he's doing this. This is a tough He's one. doing this. Samuel, let's start this with you, ridiculous. man. You're on a roll. This is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard recently. I read the article that Nick sent around from the New Yorker talking about fish and animals. and Listen, we don't even give a shit about most animals yet. How, who Put your hand up if you ate an, ate an animal in the last week. Put your hand up right now. Who ate an animal? All right. You obviously don't think animals have rights if you eat animals. So why, why isn't that problem solved before we even worry about robots? Like, I can't, I can't even believe that this is on the agenda. <laughs> I eat animals, but here's, but here's the thing, right? But here's the thing, right? If I had to kill my own animals, I wouldn't eat them. Like, no way. I don't like blood. I don't want the blood on me. I don't want that. But if it's a steak and chips, I'll have it. There's just so many other things that we need to solve first before we worry about that. Right, And there's a big ins- assumption in there that robots are going to be sentient at some point. And we don't even know what sentience is. So, uh, anyway, I've had enough. I've, I mean, I've said enough. That's enough. <laughs> this is good. We wanted controversy. I reckon we've got it here. Nico, tell us why. Sam, mate, you're so short-sighted. <clears throat> um, <laughs> look, part of me really wants to disagree with this. If it wasn't for the fact that both of these guys disagreed, then I would have also disagreed. But let's go on the agreement argument. And I think there is an, uh, th- there is an argument that can be made and that I think is relatively strong. Sammy, you're absolutely right. This concept that because, because we think that the brain is a deterministic computing machine and therefore if we plug all the right cables in in the right way and we flick it on, we're going to create consciousness, is totally misguided. So this idea that robots are going to develop consciousness and therefore they need rights is pretty bollocks. Um, We're a long way from that. But um, Charlie Munger always talks about inverting. So I'm going to invert this, which is what we're not going to have is we're not going to have robots that become conscious and become like animals and become like humans. What we'll have first is we're gonna have animals and then humans that become like robots. And because of that, perhaps the discussion around should robots have rights is actually one that is worth having and is worth supporting. Um, And for people who are like, what the fuck is he talking about? (laughs) Um, At the moment, we are a good 12 months into the commercialization and the general widespread use of CRISPR and Cas9 technology. So we're now able to edit genes to um, a, a fairly well-specified uh, and, br- and, and quite broad um, sort of implementation to start ac- actually editing the genes of animals and potentially humans. Um, China is very low on regulation in this area. China have denied so far that... Um, that sorry, China have acknowledged that they have actually created a human embryo through CRISPR-9. They did deny that they let it, that they actually implanted it. So if we believe China, there's currently no human life that's been created through CRISPR-9. But the reality is that we are going to have animals fairly shortly that are going to start to get genetically modified. And there is a not too distant future where we can be modifying things and there's a logic, logical part that says in some parts of the world where the regulation is quite low, we may start to get modified humans that become modified down to a level where we start to think of them as nothing more than robots. And so therefore that question is, should those things, whatever they are, have rights? I may have just gone a little bit Westworld on this thing, but... 
No, I wanted to disagree. It was it was the best possible agree. I reckon you could have put on the table. Can I just, can I just add one thing there? But sure. that that is the whole problem of this cross fertilization in industries. I mean, is that really a robot? Is actually the question because that's kind of that biological manipulation. Is that part of the evolutionary chain that we're already on? Are they separate organisms that are robots? When you start to talk about the rights of humans using CRISPR and being genetically modified to the point where, I don't know, they're dumbed down and become a kind of a robot, then I would argue that they're still humans and they're not robots. But the definitions then get interesting and this crossover that we get is, in that instance, it's an agree, but uh, hey. I guess from my... No, 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 not, not, not at all. I mean, I was recently in Boston and there was a discussion around the CRISPR and there's a, there's a CRISPR that they know there's a CRISPR in North Korea and God knows what's happening there. And that's scary because otherwise everything gets bounced through Boston and they go, if we take out malaria, what are the, what are the impacts on the rest of the world? And we have, there's no way, I mean, I'm sure we can compute it eventually, but at the moment we're not capable of it. So don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. So, um, but I was, I was at Harvard and they've got this robot that walks around and within eight minutes, the robot was manipulating the, the human. And so it's um, uh, being emotional is our um, biggest asset, but it's also a weakness. And that's something that the robots don't have. Um, and it, it's, it's a learnt behaviour. And so therefore, I mean, it will, they'll, they'll nail it, um, but it's, it, it's not, I, I think it's something that we need to be really conscious of. And so therefore, no rights. And they, they perform tasks, but not the emotional ones that, that involve manipulation. Because within eight minutes, they're straight there knowing that we're going to make a decision based on a, with our family or whatever it might be, based on um, our, our bias. So, um, ap- no, I'm, I'm absolutely no rights. What was the dialogue between you and the robot? It, was, it wasn't me. I was, um, it, it got to something around going somewhere and then family were brought up. And then understanding that we're loyal to our blood, and then it was it sort of it spiralled very quickly. So it was around a, a, a family issue. Um, so, which which we're pretty reliable to be um, biased towards. Out of the community of within Startup Victoria, is there is there what does the chart look like as far as AI-driven companies? Um, is it is it is it gotten particularly steep over the past sort of 12 months? Yeah, well, we're, we're putting... There's a, um, there's a smart city going into Werribee. Yep. And so, I mean, IBM's cognitive... Um, they, they've got a huge focus, obviously, with Watson. And so it's a partnership between IBM and Honeywell and a couple of other companies. And we're, we're sort of plugging our startup community into it because it'll be a showcase of... Um, of our, of our startups. And it's it's the best case scenario. What, what they're doing is creating the best case scenario with all aspects of our life from, um, I mean, pressurising our pipes so that you know if a, if a toilet is flushed so that you're able to create safety mechanisms, which, which South East Water are doing at the moment, but um, to reinventing how the mail gets distributed and just little things, but it's all, it's, um, it's all plugging into, into being smarter. And that's something that's, um, that we've, yeah, we've, we've got a sort of a, a, a focus on. That ag tech and a bit of health and med tech, uh, we're doing really, really well in, in Victoria. Right. Okay. Peter Diamandis, who's a, a, someone who comes on the show quite a bit. Um, <laughs> 40% of today's Fortune 500 companies will no longer exist in 10 years. 
I think this is a... Uh, I personally would agree with this. I reckon in, it depends what you mean um, with no longer exists. Surely there's got to be some legacy IP there somewhere, but have we got any conflicts going on? Oh, come on, Sam. You can't sit on the... Yes, that's good. All right, well, let's start with you down there, Sam. Why do you disagree, man? What's going on? This stat is an interesting one because 40% in the last 10 years fell off the list. So it's a continuation of what's happened in the past. But I think that there's enough attention being paid in most of the established companies now to know that they need to do something different. There's a chance that this would happen, but I feel like the odds are against it happening because there's more awareness of what would happen. And the, a lot of companies got blindsided by the technology. And I think the reason that that happened was in 1999 after we had the dot-com crash, a lot of people thought, oh, terrific, back to business as usual. Yeah, see, this internet thing is a fad. And then what bubbled back up, you know, 2004, Web 2.0, that's when a lot of companies really got caught and blindsided. But I think now that the tech, technology and startup culture is diffused enough now that, you know, companies like Procter & Gamble and the established firms have kind of repositioned themselves potentially to survive. I think there's a chance it could happen. There's a chance with unforeseeable AI and other technologies, but I think it's unlikely. Mainly because they've kind of seen the storm and, and most people are responding on some capacity at the moment. I think 40% will definitely be knocked off because it's the technology with its speed, it's so unforgiving. And so they can get one thing wrong. I mean, there's going to be 40% of those that are going to nail it. And I mean, IBM's definitely not going anywhere. There's a, there's a few of them that are, on, that are, you know, 50 years ahead of us, but with what they're investing with, on, with today. But I think 40% will easily be knocked off. Who do you reckon will be first? <laughs> you got an answer, Samma? That is Not a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just lost 100 million on Theranos, didn't we? If Fairfax is going to be first. <laughs> yeah. If Fairfax... If Fairfax are going to be first. Right. Definitely. Nico, you... Um, okay, let's if, if Fairfax are on that list, I don't think they are. What's their market cap? Three billion? They wouldn't make it, would they? Yeah, about 20 cents now. About 20, yeah. About 20 cents. They certainly won't make it. They'll be gone in five years, by the way. If you enjoy the age, read it this weekend. It's not, it's not going to be around very long. Uh, I, I don't have a lot to add to what Summer said, apart from that, all the stuff about Fairfax. I hope Fairfax survives. No, I hope they um, do, but they won't. They need to. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's two parts to this question. One is sort of where, where are we on the base curve um, of the current sort of, um, sort of revolution of, of, of digital technology. I think there's a good argument that we're sort of starting to approach the plateau, um, at which point I think this won't happen again. What it will happen will the next sort of base curve will cause sort of mass disruption. And then you, now that I've used the D word, the second part of this is, and I think Sam pretty much touched on it, companies go out of business because they spend a lot of time focusing on sustaining innovation versus disruptive innovation. Um, and I think a lot of companies now are learning how to approach disruptive innovation, um, hopefully so that they survive. Can I, can I just add one other thing as well? We need to remember what happened during the GFC. A lot of companies that should have died didn't. And the reason that happens is because they're, they're large employers and the government has a vested interest in maintaining them. So GM, Ford, um, you know, a whole heap of banks that shouldn't be around are around and still on that list. And if something big happens and we have that type of a disruption where it's not incremental and a large event happens, you can suspect that uh, we'll move to that situation where we have private profits and public losses again. And, and we'll be paying to keep 
uh, outdated companies alive and give them a second chance that we shouldn't. So um, politics is, is an issue here, not just technology. Interestingly, 75% of the audience disagree. Wow. Yeah. For this one? Yeah. Not, not here. No? Does anyone who disagrees want to grab the mic and tell us why? Good chat. That's all right. There's a free signed San Martino book for it if, if you're interested. There are potentially four or five of you out there. I'll, I'll sign it as well. Yeah, yeah you, you can, can sign it. will sign it. Okay. So what are some of the tactics to avoid being in that 40? Um, well, A, it won't be 40%. Um, but B, I mean, it, it is just... And, I sort of risk talking about disruption and innovation, but in the actual classic definition, like the Christensen definition of disruptive innovation, large companies need to do two things. They need to do sustaining innovation, they need to take the, the engine of what makes money at the moment and continue to make it slightly better, and they need to be aware of disruptive innovation. They need to be aware of the things that can come in that are lower quality, that are lower cost, um, but potentially target the same audience of whatever you're selling. Companies are just getting much better at that. I mean, I work at News Corp, um, and you know, I, I I look at you know, uh, currently I'm spending a lot of time on blockchain-based media payments. Um, you know, that's a that's something that News Corp wouldn't have done. I was about to say ten years ago, but of course they wouldn't because blockchains didn't exist. But News Corp wouldn't have been having their eyes open like that ten years ago. And what's like a to put that in context? What would be a story of how a blockchain payment? method would work for a company like News Corp? Like what, would the, what would that be? I wake up in, in the morning. In, in, in how, simple terms. In how much time? Quick. Um, Quick. Uh, okay, we, we, this is a little bit off-piste. Um, but in 30 seconds, the idea is not so much a company like News Corp um, uh, creating a proprietary walled garden approach to micropayments through blockchain. The idea is about us... Um, either creating a new protocol or adapting existing protocols. Um, so HTTP is the obvious one that we would adapt to allow a micropayment layer that allowed us to be paid for content, but also allowed the advertising chain and the ad tech piece to also flow through um, through the blockchain as well, which there's actually two problems with the internet for a media company. One being people don't pay for content because it's really hard. The other that ad tech is completely broken. So if an advertiser pays $1 to put an ad on our website, um, we only get 35 cents. So 65 cents goes to this ad tech snake oil crap. Um, and so another challenge that we have and where the blockchain is an interesting solution is, is about enabling that chain as well. That was 30 seconds. 52. Georgia, so I think the corporate world is, and the startup community are they playing nice at the moment? Like, is there, have they figured out how to give uh, offer value to each other? Um, the the top top tier companies have, have worked out that they, they need to collaborate, and so all eyes are on on startups. And so I I have I'm having lots of discussions with with corporates now, um, but but funny enough, the ones that that are actually. Um, showing collaboration and working together as sort of the, the mid-tier companies because they, they can actually turn something around that's, that's appealing and appropriate and relevant to a startup. Um, but, but they're all, I mean, look at, look at NAB Labs, look at OzPost's $20 million fund, look at, the, 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 they've all got this, it's almost like outsourcing their innovation level. 
Um, and so it's a, it's a really interesting space. It makes my job um, easier because they're interested in, in being involved um, with, our, with our events and, and supporting them. Um, I think that, that there's a lot of investment going in the space and it's, and it's early stage. And I, I do worry about some sort of startup fatigue um, where, where everyone's sort of unknowingly diving into that space, thinking that, that, that they must be there without sort of really understanding the landscape of what's, what's risky and what's not and what's actually relevant to their business. But, um, so I think, I, think it's, I think it's good, but we're going to see some sort of pullback in the next five years. Um, but, I, but, I mean, the future of innovation is collaboration, so it's a good, it's a good start. Can I just add one thing too? I think Please. if, if com- so, I'm just thinking about um, how companies can survive disruption. I feel like putting innovation into this same corporate sphere doesn't work. There's going to be kind of almost like a Berkshire Hathaway reconglomeratization where companies have separate autonomous business units. I think that's a far more successful way to do it because small revenue sources don't get lost inside uh, the big organisation. So I think a separation of uh, financially connected but operationally disparate um, organisations will serve large companies better to fight disruption. Are you hanging out with companies much? I hang out with companies a lot and a lot of them I think are window dressing with their um, startup stuff. They get a little co-working space, go down to NAB, woohoo! And you go down to NAB and I said, oh, where are all your people? Because um, I've done some work with NAB, you know, like, and they, I said, where are all the people down in the startup co-working space? Oh, our employees aren't allowed in there. I said, oh, really? Why is that? They said, well, there's free coffee in there and we don't want them drinking the coffee and, and you know. I said, but don't the, don't the startups go there so they can meet people from banking because there's some garage hero with this great blockchain tech and he needs a banker? Yeah, yeah, but like, you know, there, there are some forms, you know, we've got like a fund over here, we've put 100 million in it, you know, it's just some small change for us, maybe some innovation will sneak through. I said, oh, yeah, that's cool. And when I came into your building, I had to like put down my passport and, and, and my license and everything just to get up there and wear a badge and don't go on this floor and all that. Oh, yeah, we're really collaborative. Anyway, I'm just can saying. I, can I say one thing? Oz Post have actually been quite good. I was in Bendigo with them last week. Yeah. And but they've moved into the hub. So they've, they've immersed themselves in the, in the co-working spaces rather than reinventing the wheel internally. So good. I think they've all got different approaches. Yeah. yeah that's a, but there's a, a lot of window example. dressing, I'm telling you. Get your startup on, agree. baby. Get on that startup wagon. It's MTV. It's Kurt Cobain. It's 1991, <laughs> fellas. Let's get on this. <laughs> all right. What's next? So this was a statement a fortnight ago from the CEO of McDonald's US who stated that he's rolling out uh, automated kiosks at the 14,000 McDonald's across America. So there won't actually be a human serving you in the next 18 months. The impact of that um, is either positive or negative. Do you agree with Macca's plan here or do you disagree? Has anyone been to Tokyo or Japan? (laughs) They did that 30 years ago. All right, so we've got one agree. Where do you stand, Samma? Yes, here we go. All right, this is what we want. This is what this was designed to be. There's no fence sitting. We need a conflict. George, can you start us off? I mean, you're, you're, you're right. Uh, Tokyo have led technology for decades, so it doesn't surprise us that they've already had um, essentially robots serving at restaurants. Where do you stand on this? Um, I think it's. I think it, they're a shitty company and it's shitty food, and I hope that this ruins them. But um, also, th- their food is... It's not living... 
at all. So it doesn't need it doesn't need anything living in there. And people that go there living and eat the food also won't be living for very long. So I, I think the whole the whole thing um, is is sort of divine timing for them. That's that's mic drop. That's you have to leave on that. You you can't stay. That's killer. It, I don't. I, what have I got to say? I mean. It's like these dudes pay someone 17 bucks an hour and that's too much. Like, how evil is that? Sorry, we're robot... It's like... Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't think you'll achieve it so anyway. You, I mean, you save the jobs. You're just standing well, up for the jobs. Not save the jobs. I mean, like you say, they're crappy jobs. I don't think they'll achieve it, even if they want to. I don't think it's going to happen. Because they don't just serve people. I think the complexity of human movement... Right? I mean, people falsely believe that robots are far more advanced than they are. If you, there's, there isn't a robot in the world that can get out of the way of a person and take an order and wipe a bench. And, I mean, we're, we're nowhere near it. The technology is 30 years away. This is, I don't know if, this, if his share price was struggling when he did a, a Wall Street call or what, but this is, there's zero chance of this happening. I'll bet my house on it. Let's just say hypothetically it does happen, right? <laughs> and you, what happens to all those staff? Like, what's the, what's the prospects for those staff? Like, what, if jobs like this that we've sort of grown up with as part of our generation, our parents' generation, those jobs are now done by a machine, what's the outlook? What are the opportunities for entry-level stuff? But the, 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 so this is... I. I, I I agree that Maccas is shit. Um, I agree that they're rolling out 14,000 kiosks, as they've said they are. Do I agree that it's the right thing to do? Um, I, I think this is really a question about the automation of jobs. It is. Yeah. Cool, just checking. It wasn't just about Maccas. Um, and there's a real danger in, in how we view jobs and how jobs are affected by technology because... It's essentially a loss aversion situation where we can very clearly see what we're about to lose, but it is near impossible to see what we're about to gain. And I think Kevin Kelly's got a great line that, um, you know, we could all see the farming jobs disappearing, but we couldn't see the web development jobs arriving. Um, and I think that's, that's a fundamental piece that we have to embrace a little bit more and we have to maybe normalise that idea that we shouldn't be so fearful, we should see that new jobs get created for every robot that comes in. There's a second piece to that and, and the Honourable MP Philip Didadakis, um, I think he touched on this but I don't think in Australia we, this narrative is strong enough which is we need to be better at training people to be adaptive towards the jobs and the skills that they will require in the future. And we also need to be much better at training older people um, for in skills that will be adaptable to a future economy. Um, and that's not sort of just bollocks, you know, technologist futurist talk. Um, countries like Germany do this very well. Countries like Scandinavia do this well. The, the, the sort of the adult retraining programs that those countries have in place um, are, are, are absolutely phenomenal in allowing them to deal with new technology that comes in. And it's a bit of a worry. I think Australia and, and the US both suffer this, this problem, this sort of real myopia around 
um, around skills training where we're so reliant on just digging shit out of the ground that we think we can do that forever and we don't see the need to be training people in the skills that they'll need in the future. And America's just fucked, so I'm not even going to talk about that. I've, I've had um, personal experience in, in that where I had a manufacturing line and a robot costs um, as much as a, a year's salary of a person. And I found, and so I needed um, the person on the floor to, to train the robot because um, only really they knew the nuances that, and the, the things that would go wrong on the, on the line, which would always go wrong. Um, so, and so there, there was actually always a need for, for someone to, um, to, to be overseeing the line. And what actually happened was back on um, the coding becoming more accessible is we had some robots out of Germany and but there were there was another language that my staff were able to train the robot with but wasn't coding and so therefore they were they were being upskilled and they really enjoyed the process because suddenly they weren't having to do that shitty job and they were they, the robot was doing that and then they were, they were looking at from the helicopter how how can I make things more efficient so I like I, I don't think that um, where where that far that, that that this fear around technology is right throughout Australia for the for the hungry people that um, that, that want to to further their careers that this is a fantastic opportunity and my staff grabbed it with two hands. So, the curriculum of education in this country doesn't feel like they're training for that sort of next wave. Sam, what's your vibe on the? on how Australian education is doing with yeah. preparing people for a world when they can't walk into jobs like this. Yeah, I think the, the, the major problem with education is that it narrows from year seven, year eight. It's like a pyramid scheme where you get narrower and narrower to get ready for what you're gonna study at university. And actually it needs to get wider. So that the problem with the education is that we, we get into specifics that will determine what course we get into to determine what we do at university and what we need is to be teaching wider things. So the education issue is, is gone. The other thing too is that I think STEM's a bit of a hoax. Um, I love science as much as the next guy in coding, but STEM ignores you know, the fundamentals of economics and entrepreneurship. And all the discussions that we're having right now and about this are actually about economics and entrepreneurship. And they're the two things that we need. And entrepreneurship is really about solving people's problems and organising the factors of production being adaptable for whatever the needs of tomorrow are. And economics is about understanding the financial implications and what the trajectory of change is going to be like. And they're two things that just don't get the attention. We feel as though if we give people science, magically all their problems are going to be solved and there's going to be jobs. Well, the world's full of garage heroes. I mean, science doesn't create anything. Entrepreneurship does. Everything in this room is about entrepreneurship. It's not about science. Science is what we need to create something, sure, but just having science everywhere isn't going to solve the problem. That's. But I'm an entrepreneur and I've got no skills and that's a problem. I need some engineers. What do you mean you've got no skills? Me. Entrepreneurship is the core skill. That's the no, skill. But who's going to do the work? Who's going to get? Who's going to actually make the things? I'm just sort of, this would be a great idea. Yeah, and then so your job is to find people the people who can do that. That's the, that's but we the need point. more of those people, those engineers. And the, I mean, women aren't going into engineering roles. And no, we need, we, we need, but I, it's like what Nick was saying, does everyone need to cope? You know, we don't need a million accountants, we don't need a million dentists, we don't, you know, we don't need, we need breadth, right? And there, and there are engineers out there and they're probably going to be working at McDonald's and GM or whatever. It's whether or not those people can transition to a new area and whether or not you can find them and whether or not you can get them excited about what it is you want to build. They're there, but they just need 
the opportunity and the finance and an entrepreneur to help guide them to create something. So entrepreneurship, I reckon you'd, you're doing yourself a disservice. You've got the incredible skill. You've got the most future-proof skill there is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's future-proof, but I think it's like there's there's only so many sort of entrepreneurs and leaders and you don't, you don't need a heap of them. You need I don't a know. massive, I reckon, a massive here's what I reckon. movers, the doers. No, well, here's the thing. Everyone, before the Industrial Revolution, 95% of people made their living through entrepreneurship. They were farmers. They were share farmers. They were craftspeople. They were bakers. They were carpenters. They worked for themselves. They understood their own supply chain. They understood where they got their money from. They did business with their own customers. They had their retail shop front. And then those skills got stolen from us, right? So maybe in the future, we're going to be highly paid freelancers who work in and around corporations, but we're not employees for them. So maybe we have this disparate system where our skills go to a number of different companies and startups and we're more entrepreneurial in nature even though we happen to be an engineer or a scientist as well. That's what I'm saying. We're, we're <laughs> corp- no, but, I mean, we're, we're incredibly fragmented and corporates um, are, are, are really worried that their staff are going to go out and start a business because it's a huge trend. And so, I mean, our pitch nights of the five or 600 people there, um, I, would say, I would say almost 60% are corporates now. And they're that sort of 25 to 35, and so we're and, and because that's the that's the um, it's it's the lifestyle, it's yeah. the independence, it's all sorts of things. It's good. Maybe and we don't need big corporations. I reckon we're going to go back there. Though. Yeah, we are. We're totally going to go. Like maybe we don't need big corporations. Maybe what we have is like Nick sometimes says, five global mega corporations that are these platforms that we all dance on top of. Right? That's what you said. I, I, it's good. I didn't know I'd said that. We had breakfast, you told me. <laughs> I, must, I must say, Steve, I'm fascinated on your views on education and I think you should write a book about it. <laughs> Funny you should say that. <laughs> um, uh, that. I pretty much just grabbed the mic for that. But uh, what I'll also say, just sort of watching that ping pong, is um, I think that discussion is really important. I think it's really important to remember what the majority of people in this country do um, because... You know, the majority of people in this country aren't the people that are at this conference. So when we talk about upskilling, when we talk about education, we need to talk about, and actually, this is not true in Australia, but in the US, um, the, most common, um, the most common job is a truck driver. Um, so the US needs to start thinking about what, what they do with those people that used to be able to drive trucks. We need to start thinking about what we do with people who used to drive trucks, but also a lot of people that drive trains and that work in mining um, as well. So. The discussion about should everyone be sort of more entrepreneurial and stuff and do we need corporations, you know, we, we, we live in a country with 23.89 million people and um, I think we're going to require corporations to organise the labour, um, but what that labour is doing is increasingly changing and I think it's, it's important to add a sort of a scale lens to that conversation as well. And, and just on the, on the truck drivers, let's take that example. You know, you know the thing is that in the last kind of 50 years of this comfort cycle post-World War II where everything kind of turned out and the government's going to look after you, they're not going to. At some point as humans, we have to become self-reliant. If you can read and you drive a truck, then you've got to to be self-reliant. You actually need to see what's coming and do something about it. I, I really think that we can reinvent our careers if we want to, if you can read, if you've got basic skills, you can do it. And, and I, I, I feel as though we've outsourced our ability to look after ourselves and someone has to do the job of looking after us. I really feel like um, we're all economic outpatients in this modern world and it's about time we actually started doing something for ourselves. I really do. Sorry, I know that sounds a bit sort of right wing, but <laughs> and I'm totally not a right wing person, but I'm like, seriously, 
get out there and can learn something. You did. You, let's just talk about the book. For <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's got a lot to do with that conversation. It has though, got right? a lot to do with it. I just finished writing it like a week ago. It's called The Lessons School Forgot. Because what school does is it teaches you to be a compliant industrial factory worker where you learn certain skills and then you get plugged into a corporation. And it teaches you how to be a wage earner. And I think that it's not future-proof. It doesn't teach anything about finance. Like, ironically, if you learn about finance at school or university, you won't learn anything about personal finance or investing. None, zero, zip. You'll learn debits and credits because that was set up so that you could be the accountant in a company. And so the book is about revolution, you know, reinvention, how to reinvent yourself and revenue. You know, the things that you don't learn in school because school can't change quick enough and the things that we're teaching people aren't going to hold them in good stead. And so the book is really about understanding that the government's not going to save you, the company's not going to save you and your job is already dead, you just don't know it yet. And so it's showing people how they can learn what they need to learn so that they can adapt to the world as it arrives. If you want a copy of the prequel, <laughs> jump onto Twitter at future underscore sandwich and tell us whether you reckon driverless cars will ever be fully automated. Now, episode one, I think, was on driverless cars, which you guys both kindly start in, as you do every second episode anyway. And I left the episode thinking this and then I wrote something on Medium and after several comments in the post I was convinced otherwise and I think that that whole understanding of actually the way that the trolley predicament right do we hit that person or do we hit that person when we get down to the point of actually programming that are we just going to say we're going to have to have a red button next to the person who's in the car to press and it's ultimately up to them where, how, how do we get down to that end point of who makes the call? I, 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 earlier, weirdly enough, a couple of these questions sort of touch on this idea of determinism um, and, and of people who write code having far too much confidence that what they do is perfect. Um, so I think there's a really interesting answer to the trolley problem um, in that external factors will answer the trolley problem for us. Um, so the trolley problem for anyone who's just totally blank is, um, you know, let's say I'm driving down the street in my self-driving car, so I'm not driving, um, and a child runs out in front of me. Uh, does my car decide, and it can't possibly stop, I'm going too quick. Does my car decide to go straight ahead and kill the kid who ran out in front of me, swerve to the left, and run into an old guy who's walking down the footpath or swerve to the right and go off the side of a bridge and kill me. Um, so it's, and then there's a bazillion different versions of that. Um, but the, I, I think that I would start with the fact that this is a problem that needs to be solved. Um, 2.3 million people per year in the world are killed by, by auto accidents and about 20 million people are really seriously injured. So in the course of when we've been talking here, another um, 75 people have died. Um, so, and that's like, yeah, that's sort of most of you, by the way. Um, not really, you're all still good. Uh, 
so I think it's a really important problem to solve. And I think that, you know, rather than AI and, you know, um, and creating consciousness, that uh, automation is something that we will actually get to fairly quick. It's a relatively simple deterministic problem. And I don't think the trolley problem is as much as everyone thinks it is, um, because the fact is that we'll never have perfect operation. And so therefore, the, the, the sort of the randomness, the randomness of external factors will answer the trolley problem for us. And, you know, in the case of the example I just gave there, maybe my car will try to turn and not kill anybody. And in doing so, it will lose traction because there's a little bit of water on the road there and the wind was going in that direction right then. And then the kid tripped over anyway. Um, so there's so many externalities that I think that the trolley problems will start to become totally useless. I think the, the bit that struck me was, let's just say this is shared intelligence. So every car has a has the sensors and they experience thousands of things a minute and they're all sharing those thousands of things a minute so essentially this shared intelligence is having a billion experiences a, a minute therefore how can us as one driver with one set of experiences possibly make better decisions than something with near infinite experience and that to me was the the clincher where I went from can I throw can I throw a, a really fun hypothetical into that let's go that's not really a tro trolley problem um, so we have multiple cars driving down the street. There's about to be a serious accident. The cars are all communicating to each other. Can the cars offer bids for the other cars to get out of the way? <laughs> so will you accept money? In, and this is made in a split-second decision. I'm a rich dude. I've got my self-driving Bentley. You're a poor dude in your self-driving Hyundai i30. Sorry to anyone who drives an i30. Um, they're actually great cars, though. Um, and my car thinks I'm about to be put into danger. Can I make a real-time bid to your car to put you in more danger than me? Because that's fun. Okay, you've just um, made me think of a new career opportunity. I'm going to be a traffic troll, and I'm going to be out there getting in the way, waiting for bids to make money. And that's my new job, I'm just saying. <laughs> George, we um, got... I mean, I, I think it's a, an infrastructure thing because I... I um, one, I, wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have even seen the old person. I would have gone there. Um, but I think it's an infrastructure thing where we, we, ne we need to... At the moment, you can walk really easily onto roads and we, we're assuming that there's a person there that's going to be conscious that this is a, a, a child... A, a, there's a school in the area, but, and, and so therefore you've got to drive slowly. But, and, but I, I mean, I just think that roads need to be just designed a, a little bit differently. And so assume that... Um, that they're going to, that they're not going to act like humans. And, and that's, I mean, that's, I, that's the only way I can see it working. I mean, and it, it's got to be binary with um, sort of, they're all automated. But I mean, because having an emotional human with an automated car, the two just don't, they don't work. So it's, it's got to be all or nothing. And, that, that's, a, and that's a safe place. There's, there's a, sorry, there's, there's two parts to that. One is um, that full autonomous thing, like the reality is it will become illegal for a human to drive. And if you read, Elon Musk posted his master plan part two, because um, it's 10 years since his master plan part one, which he pretty much just executed. One of the pieces in uh, the master plan part two is to create autonomous cars that are 10 times safer than humans, which is a really interesting statement because what that means is once self-driving cars are 10 times safer than humans, it will become illegal for a human to drive because what, we don't want those people on the road. But the other, the other piece around that sort of people jumping out and stuff like that. One of the biggest problems that people implementing self-driving cars on the roads in public are currently having is that when somebody sees the little naughty Google car driving sort of quite slowly down the street, they jump out in front of it to see that it stops. 
um, and it's actually becoming quite a big problem um, that as they're driving this car around, people are testing whether it'll stop and not hit them. Yeah, pe people will start hacking how the cars behave. Just really quickly, there is one thing that's interesting with death and statistics. I mean, it's we overreact to things that have low probability and high outrage. And it's the same as terrorism, right? I mean, what, while it's a terrible thing, there's been, what, three and a half thousand deaths since 2001 due to terrorism? And it's incredibly low probability versus, what, t was, is it 20 million deaths in cars? No, it's since um, 2001. Yeah, 20 million deaths. So um, we need to be able to trust the statistics that it's going to be a better outcome and not let high outrage, low probability reshape something that will save more lives and reduce more harm. Very interesting. We're about to hear the get off the stage music, but Georgia, thank you for coming. You're sitting on an absolute rocket ship of uh, talent and innovation. So this is a, if you want to basically go to a future assembly every day and you're not already part of Startup Victoria, get onto their website, go to some pitch nights. It's really, it's, it's a super exciting organisation and we're Thrilled to have had you on the uh, panel today. So thanks, Georgia. Thanks, Tommy. And Nick, Samma, you guys have supported the podcast since the start. Uh, your time is very precious. I really appreciate it. And um, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for these guys. Thank you, Tommy. Thanks for listening to Future Sandwich, recorded live from Future Assembly. Big thanks to the guests. Georgia Beatty, the CEO of Startup Victoria. You can follow Georgia on Twitter at GBeatty, G-B-E-A-T-T-I-E. -T -T -E. And if you're ever in Melbourne or Victoria, get down to one of Startup Victoria's events. You can catch Nick Hodges on Twitter at Nick Hodges, that's N-I-C-H-O-D-G-E-S, and crowd favourite Samma on at Samatino. And last but not least, Maddie Thompson for editing this like a boss. And some exciting news. Future Sandwich took out Best Tech, Science and Gaming Podcast at Castaway, the Australian Podcast Awards. So thanks to Dave and the team for putting it on. It was very humbling to take it out amongst such strong competition. You can check out the video from the night at futuresandwich.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter for the latest updates. And give me a shout with any feedback or people I should talk to. Season 2 is in the pipeline and I'm keen for your ideas. Thanks again for listening. And cut.